Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Pandemic panic. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? And how do we create a new normal? Today, I'm joined by Michael Beard, Associate Professor and Specialist in Viral Pathogens, and Faye McCallum, Professor and Expert in Teacher and Student Wellbeing in the Face of Uncertainty. Welcome. Thank you. It's the elephant in the room, but COVID-19 could be something that's with us forevermore. Suddenly and without preparation, we've been thrust into a new way of living, homeschooling, working from home, and social distancing. Why has this particular pandemic been so widespread and devastating across the globe? And how has the move to virtual connection impacted our lives and our children? Mike, maybe we can start with you. Yeah. I'd really like to understand why uh, COVID-19 is so infectious and why it's been so, so devastating. Well, I think we don't fully understand this everything about this virus. So it's, there's, there's a lot we're, we're trying to understand uh, at the moment. But this virus is very infectious. And, and one of the main reasons is that because you, uh, you are uh, shedding virus a couple of days before you have symptoms. And so that means that you can have people who don't know they've got the virus and yet they're still shedding virus. And so you can then go out and infect other people and those people can infect other people. And so that's one of the main reasons why this virus is so um, infective, if you like. So it's infectious before it's detected. Exactly right. And, that, and that's a little bit different to the SARS-CoV-1 outbreak in, 2000 and, uh, in 2003, um, in which you were only in, in, uh, infective, um, or you could only infect people, I should say, uh, only after you showed symptoms. So that meant that if you got on top of those people and you put them into quarantine situation, you could then bottle up that virus, all those, those, those people who were infected very quickly and, yeah. and curb the spread. Yeah. And, and like any virus, this virus is evolving and changing? Look, it's not evolving that much and, and changing. It's probably evolved very early on when it jumped um, out of as some animal species. But if we compare it to some of the other viruses that we all know, like HIV and hepatitis C, for example, hmm. um, those viruses change very quickly and they really stay one step ahead of the immune system. This virus doesn't seem to be changing that much at the moment. So if we do genomic sequencing on the whole virus, and that's, that's occurring around the world, you'll only see handfuls of mutations changing between different isolates. So I think that's very good for us that it's not changing that much. And so we, could, we can probably be thankful for that at the moment. So there's potentially hope then for a, a vaccine, which we'll come on to in, into a minute. Yeah. But wouldn't mind just exploring a little bit um, about th this, uh, this virus and this, this episode compared to previous. I guess the, uh, the, the historical benchmark uh, is a Spanish flu, mm. Uh, mm. You know, where it's estimated that about 50 million people died yeah. uh, with that particular uh, episode. So, uh, I mean, if, if we had COVID-19 back in those days when we didn't have the modern uh, med medical understanding and conditions, would COVID-19 have been as devastating as uh, Spanish flu? I think it would have been as devastating. We could, we could flip that around and say, well, if we put Spanish flu now, would it, would it be as devastating as COVID-19? And I think, I think not. I think because most of the people who, who died in, in the Spanish flu died of a secondary bacterial infection, uh, strep pneumo infection. And that was pre-antibiotic era. And so we now have great antibiotics to actually um, curb that disease. So uh, we would have got on top of it a lot, lot quicker. 
So certainly if Spanish flu was around now, we would, we would be on top of that a, a lot sooner than, than uh, back in, in 1918, for example. Yeah, and we've also got some antivirals and some other medicines that actually slow the infection rate down and uh, can be used as... Yeah, not, not, not so much for COVID-19 at the moment, yeah, okay. um, but they're sort of being developed at the moment. We yeah. still don't really have a good antiviral therapy for, for COVID-19, and I think that's why vaccine's probably our best, our best bet at the moment. So, so, so what are the chances of the vaccine? We hear that uh, coronaviruses are particularly difficult to develop vaccines for, is that true? Um, yeah, well, there, there, there are no vaccines for coronaviruses, full stop at the moment. Um, and some of the other coronaviruses that people may be well aware of, or, or maybe not, are the common cold virus, for example. Um, probably 30 or 40 per cent of common cold or colds are, are due to the coronaviruses. We don't have vaccines against those. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we just have to wait and see whether a vaccine will, will, be, will be useful. Uh, certainly, it will, it'll certainly be useful, but whether we can develop one's another matter. Um, it's looking very promising at the moment. Mm. Um, certainly there are a number of candidates out there and there are a lot of people working on vaccines. So, uh, and some of them are in, in different phases of, of clinical trials. So yeah. fingers crossed on that front. So, and, and we're certainly hearing about a number of vaccines mm. that are being developed uh, in different kind of medical research institutes yep. all over the world. I guess yep. the first one to develop the vaccine uh, mm -hmm. potentially can, uh, can help, but also uh, potentially recoup uh, some of the cost of the development of that, uh, sure. that vaccine. Mm. I mean, I guess Russia has gone pretty quickly uh, to announce uh, that, that it's got a vaccine. So, you know, yeah. uh, are all vaccines equal, Michael? <laughs> well, no, they're all, all vaccines are, are generated slightly differently. I mean, there are some um, systems out there that are similar, but they're also differences. So some vaccines look at um, injecting small pieces of messenger RNA or, or RNA into, into, into the body that mimic the viral, um, to, to produce the viral proteins. Others inject proteins themselves to elicit an immune response. So they're all slightly different, and they're all different in the way that they elicit that immune response. Now, Russia may just get lucky, and I doubt whether they've done the complete testing that, that is requ generally required for a vaccine. So we probably shouldn't go over there and sign up uh, for the testing at this stage. Uh, probably wouldn't at this stage, unless yeah. you're desperate. But yeah. <laughs> um, look, we'll just have to wait and see what happens with the vaccine in Russia. Because normally it takes you know, up to five to eight years to develop a vaccine, and Russia seems to have done it in, in a number of months. Yeah. Um, so all the other vaccines that are being developed are having to go through quite rigorous trials, albeit, rap albeit rapidly, but they're still going through the, uh, the right channels. And uh, so what, you know, we, we hear sometimes around adverse uh, reactions or effects mm. uh, yeah. f from, um, from vaccines. Can you explain to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, that's come into the news recently with AstraZeneca, who's uh, gone uh, into phase three clinical trial. Uh, and a phase three clinical trial is where you use large numbers of, of people to test your vaccine. So you're looking to test safety, efficacy, and you're looking to see whether it protects against viral infection. And what's happened in this instance is that there's been an adverse event and they've had to stop the trial and they're going to investigate why that adverse event was. Now, this happens just about every time you do a, a vaccine trial, because you can imagine if you're looking at 50 to 60,000 people, you're going to get some events at some time. Now, the question is, did that event occur because of the vaccine or was it just happened to be coincidence that a person had a bad day um, or had some other infection or something? We just don't know. So that's why 
there'll be a uh, quite a strict and rigorous uh, investigation into that adverse event and hopefully it'll all be okay. So uh, an adverse event sounds very sinister. Uh, what, 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 give me an example of an adverse event. Oh, an adverse event. event could be someone who developed um, uh, a, a rash or some nervous problems, nervous um, uh, issue problems, or for example, they generated high levels of fever, for example. Yeah, okay. That, that sort of adverse event. And uh, so, okay, the, the, the process for the development of vaccines, we can trust in that, in that process to go forward. I mean, the, uh, the hope is that if the vaccine is produced, then we'll develop this kind of herd immunity and be able to then live in a COVID world. But a vaccine won't get rid of coronavirus completely ever, will it? No, no, there's certainly no way that it's going to get rid of the, the virus completely. And I, I think once a vaccine becomes available, and I'm, and I'm very optimistic that one will, just the question is, is the time, how long will it take? But once that vaccine is available, there will be a lot of, you know, the, the aim will be to get develop immunity to a large proportion of the population. And that in turn will protect the population at large from, from the infection. But I think what's going to happen is that we will end up living with this virus long term. And it may just end up becoming like the common cold eventually. And it embeds itself within the community. Yeah. So we're never going to be in a post-COVID-19 world because we're going to be in a COVID-19 surrounding us world. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I think we have to learn to live with that. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a fact of life, I think, of uh, the world of infectious diseases that we live in. And, and what are we doing here in South Australia uh, around uh, the, this international effort and working with this international yeah. effort? Look, I've, I've never seen a, a, a group of scientists and clinicians um, jump on something so rapidly, and, and rightly so. It's a, it's a massive problem that we need to get on top of. Um, so here in, in Adelaide, we got together with a, a group of individuals and formed a, a group called COVID-19 SA, and it brings together um, people from the Basil Hetzel Institute, the University of Adelaide and the Women's and Children's Hospital um, to study the immunology of the virus and, and a little bit more about the virology. And so we're lucky in Adelaide that we're not too big, but we're big enough to be able to have a large population and that we can study the virus. One of the downsides is that we've been too good in South Australia with our public <laughs> health and we don't have too many patients. But, okay. <laughs> but what, we, what we've managed to do is to enrol those patients that were infected and we're now actually looking long term to see what effect that virus has on the immune system. Yeah. So. Not that you're wishing to have a higher infection no, level. No, 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 no. Uh, I think it's, it's a very good uh, <laughs> place to be in. Yeah. Um, but um, what is becoming apparent is that this is a disease, not, not, an, not just an acute disease, but there are people called long haulers who have certain issues down the track. So there are people who have shortness of breath. Um, there can be neurological issues, um, cognitive issues and that sort of thing. So I Still, we still don't understand that because we haven't been in this long enough. And that, that's going to be one of the problems. What's going to happen a year down the track, two years down the track? Um, so we just have to wait and see. So they've survived the acute infection, but then got some long-term problems yeah. because of that infection. Yeah, and that yeah. doesn't happen with everyone, but it does yeah. happen in, in some individuals. And certainly they're seeing that more so in America, um, certainly out of New York, where they had huge numbers of infections early on. Oh, and they're right. seeing these people that just cannot get over their infection. Uh, it's having a long-lasting effect. Yeah. And finally, I think, can we uh, shift the conversation a little bit yeah. to the, uh, the kind of the impact? So we've heard a, a lot about, you know, why uh, COVID-19 uh, is, is, is quite unusual uh, as a pandemic. Obviously, the, the world has apparently ground to a halt uh, with this, but it's had a lot of impacts for us 
personally, with our families and uh, with, with the way that we're, we're currently living as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think what began as a public health crisis soon evolved into a social and an economic crisis. Uh, and at the height of the pandemic, uh, which was around April, um, we had over 91% of learners, like kids in schools, uh, across the world that were impacted. 91%? Yeah, 91.3%. Of school-aged kids across the world yeah, impacted? were impacted. Wow, yeah. Um, which is pretty incredible. I don't think this is something that's been that extensive before. Um, so, yeah, it did impact, uh, you know, economically, and we're now in a recession. But back a few months ago, we found lots of people becoming unemployed or underemployed, uh, lots of uncertainty about employment. You know, parents were uh, therefore home, not working, children uh, not at school or school learning in a different way. Um, and socially, like you said in the beginning, we had to learn to interact and connect with people in different ways. So, you know, it's probably fair to say every country across the world has been impacted by, by this crisis. Mm. And have we seen any kind of long-term uh, impacts, uh, particularly for kids around this social isolation and uh, oh, uh, yeah, these change yeah. conditions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that children, um, you know, a, a lot were forced home to, to try and learn, continue their studies at home. Um, and now if you're a little kid like five and you were looking forward to starting school, then all of a sudden you're at home and not able to go to school. So, you know, that's a real disappointment for a five-year-old who's been gearing up towards that. And so in some states, you know, in Australia in particular, they've just said, well, no five-year-olds are starting school this year. So already their schooling has been delayed. And then you look at children at the other end of the schooling um, life cycle around year 12, finishing school, having to do exams, get ATARs, go to university. Uh, they've been forced into a situation often at home, remotely, alone, isolated, having to learn with their teacher online uh, and preparing for exams. So they're finding that very stressful. Mm. And uh, I guess, you know, the, our kids uh, came home and uh, hunkered down onto the social media uh, when, when we got home. I mean, to a certain extent, that was potentially a good thing because uh, there's some channels for communication, I guess, with their friends and support uh, for that, even though however irritating it is for the parents uh, uh, and it's difficult to police when you're working from home as well yeah. and got these dynamics. Yeah. But uh, do you think social media has been a positive aspect for this or negative? Uh, look, I think both. Yeah. Uh, there are children that have uh, really embraced social media and can use it very safely and can use technolo technology to learn and, and have been quite successful at it. Uh, there are other children um, that have felt bullied, particularly girls. Uh, they experience more bullying through social media than boys. Um, but what we found, what we find is that the boys are experiencing less bullying by being online and learning at home. Uh, so it's been different for different kids, for different age group, for, for different gender. Mm. Uh, and lots of challenges for parents in there mm. um, because many of them are at home uh, having to support their kids learning. Now, they were often not skilled to do that. Uh, they often didn't have the attributes 
to do what a teacher does all day, every day. Certainly not uh, prepared for it. <laughs> no, exactly. And uh, many were trying to work from home at the same time. Uh, many, many houses and are not set up for learning at home. Uh, yeah, all... with four or five workstations yes, for all the difference. They don't have yeah. the resources. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, kids, there are a lot of families, yeah. uh, poorer families who had no ex access to technology or to bandwidth or things like that. So, you know, they've just dropped out of the schooling system. Mm. Um, there are a lot of kids that have just gone lost. Have we got, do we know those numbers? Well, I, I did hear in Western Sydney about 20% of kids wow. have just gone missing from the schooling system. And so, you, you know, back to your question before about the long-term impacts. Well, again, we've got lots of groups of kids who uh, their whole year has been disrupted through schooling. And will they catch up? Will they catch up next year or in a few years' time? It's, it's hard to know. Mm. Mm. And I guess, um, I guess through this process as well, we've, uh, we've realised a new respect for teachers and uh, what they have yes. to go through. Uh, yes. Certainly having to you know, manage that uh, on, on a home situation. But, uh, yeah, yeah, well, teaching's a tough job. Yeah. It's always been a tough job. And it takes you were a teacher at one point, I you? was. Yeah, I yeah. was. So yes. you know the hard work involved in that. Definitely, yeah, yeah. and you need a lot of energy and a lot of patience uh, to have a classroom of you know, 25, 30 children. Um, but what happened was this pandemic hit so quickly that often, uh, in a lot of cases, schools were just sort of shut within 48 hours. And teachers don't, in schools don't normally teach online. That's, that's not something that, that they do. They do face-to-face -face teaching and you know, group work and inquiry-based learning and all these sorts of wonderful things. So there they were having to prepare lessons to teach online, to prepare learning packages for kids to take home, you know, all with the aim of not disrupting the learning. And um, they found that enormously hard. It was uh, you know, working around the clock to get things ready to go online. And again, schools weren't, weren't set up to teach online. Uh, teachers weren't able to engage with the technology to teach online. Mm. You know, yeah. how, do, how do you do teach a lesson through Zoom and have breakout groups? Like, we can all do it now, but back, back then in the beginning, uh, this was a, a new frontier for a lot of teachers. So, so we, learnt, we learnt a lot through that we process. We have learnt yeah. a lot, uh, so yes. So come the next global pandemic, we'll be we'll okay. We'll be ready. Yeah, yeah we'll be ready. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I guess we, we hear a lot, uh, you know, it's kind of first world problem around the, uh, the kind of cotton wool uh, generation, this generation that's been uh, uh, overly supported, maybe some criticisms come from, from other generations. But, you know, it's the, it's the younger generation that's really been hit hardest oh, uh, uh, through this. Yeah. Are you seeing, seeing signs of resilience with, uh, within this group? Well, how, how's that group reacting? And, I think I think we will see resilience. You know, we're not, we're not out of it yet. Uh, we keep going through these different waves. Um, so, look, initially, uh, lots of kids were worried. Um, they were, you know, and kids used to worry about climate change. Now they're worrying about the future, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they're worrying about will I get sick, or will someone I know and love die, and how do I cope with grief? Yeah, um, so it's much more immediate, isn't oh, it? it? Is, climate change is this longer-term issue. Yes. Uh, and often it's too difficult to really comprehend yes. the impacts. But COVID-19, you know, it's you could real. die. Yes. You know, members in your family could die. That's you right. then start becoming concerned about, particularly older members in, in yes, your family. Right. And, uh, mm. and yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's that anxiety and the things associated with worry that, uh, you know, pre-COVID, we used to say one in four kids would worry, were worried about something. 
uh, now the, the numbers have, would have clearly increased uh, and kids are just worrying about immediate impacts on their family and their future, um, their future of job, their future of schooling, their future with friends, you know, will things get back to normal, you know, during the during the pandemic they, they weren't allowed to play sport, they weren't allowed to go to school, um, they weren't allowed to connect with, you know, grandparents, um, you know, only their immediate family. So, you know, a whole lot of things were cut off from them that, you know, younger children wouldn't have really understood either. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's really changed the way that, that kids are, you know, working, playing, socialising and interacting with others. Yeah. But we're an adaptable species we and uh, we've been able to adapt. We have. Uh, so let, let's assume that we get a vaccine. Let's assume that things uh, go back to semi-normality. We're probably still going to have some aspects of uh, improved cleanliness and social distancing. I don't think those things are ever going to leave us now. We're, and maybe shaking uh, hands with strangers is uh, going to be a thing, uh, a thing of the past. But um, what's, what, what are some of the major impacts uh, going forward? And I think you talked a little bit about you know year 12s and having difficulty uh, with exams and uh, going into that exam period. But really the, the job market's gonna be in a very bad situation for the next the next few years. So what's uh, what might be some recommendations for kids coming out of school? Yeah, well, I, I think they've got to look, look at their strengths and, and what, you know, like you, you said before, they are becoming much more resilient uh, and they are uh, having faced this. So looking at their character strengths and probably considering you know what we're good at in in our future employment and there's things like you know the world economic forum have brought out sets of 21st century skills that kids need for the future and they often talk about literacies so some of the new ones coming out of this are things like you know financial literacy ict literacy um, cultural and civic literacy like it's not just about numeracy and literacy as we used to know it anymore there's also new competencies that kids are having to learn um, and also their character, you know, their persistence, their grit, their resilience uh, and really focusing on those skills and, and what they think they're good at. Mm. I, I think the future job security has, has changed. Um, you know, I work in teacher education. We're finding a lot of people coming into the teaching and they're also nursing workforces because there's job security there. Um, so we're sort of finding that people are searching out those sorts of employment that are secure rather than probably previously. It was like, oh, well, I might try this for a while and then I might try that or I might start up my own business or I like yeah. cooking, you know, all those the other jobs that have gone uh, and, are, and are a bit threatened. So probably looking for more job security. Mm. Or maybe a study at university. Yeah, well, that's a good <laughs> thing to do. That's right. Um, and I guess, uh, Mike, uh, also in uh, a kind of living with COVID uh, world, I guess some of the, uh, how, how we screen for disease within, within population, we, I think some of the, uh, the big challenges here has been this uh, community uh, uh, infection and uh, not, not being able to trace or track that. So what, what are our options for actually tracking or tracing kind of background levels uh, of disease within, within communities? Look, I think as we move forward, testing is going to be the key thing here. So we're going to have to um, somehow develop quick, easy, affordable tests to actually keep on top of this virus. So you might want to think, for example, um, before uh, kids go to school, they might have a test. Uh, and those tests are becoming available now in, uh, in, in some uh, companies are, are putting them out. Um, they're yet to be approved, 
but certainly where you can test for under a dollar a day. Uh, and, and it would be an instant or? Yeah, it'll be an, inst an instant test. And, and the technology's out there, it just has to be modified and, and, and to work and shine to work well in, in, in a certain situation. But I've, I've mentioned the school situation where you could uh, check kids before they come to school. You could uh, look on a university campus, for example, or you could just test everyone, mass test. And then you can have the ability to actually quarantine people who are, are in who are, are positive for the COVID nineteen. Look, that's not going to that's not going to um, catch everyone, but it's going to be a start to oh, actually oh. getting on, on top of this this virus. I think what this whole pandemic has brought to the fore is the importance of science and the importance of public health uh, and the ability to track the viruses, as you've mentioned, through genomic testing and working out where clusters have originated from and how we can look at the epidemiology and the public health aspects of this virus. It's very important so that we can get on top of this, this virus. And I think as we move forward, there, there will be clusters of outbreaks. And if we can keep that level of infection down where we can get on top of those clusters, then that's when we're going to be able to just live with this virus moving forward. And are there any ways that we can more rapidly identify those clusters, whether they be in a certain neighbourhood? Uh, uh, without individual testing. So a kind of background uh, screening check which is applied. I'm not sure what you mean by that, Han. How... Testing water, for example? Uh, well, okay, testing, testing wastewater is, is, is one way yeah. uh, of, doing, of doing that, but you can imagine that you're testing wastewater from um, uh, many, many, many households. So then somehow you've got to drill down as to where that cluster could be. Yeah. So it's, it's a good surveillance tool. Yeah. Uh, I guess you can go further up the, uh, the pipeline, can't yeah, you? Yeah, well, yeah, it yeah. depends on where you take the yeah. sample from, I suppose. <laughs> um, but so, for example, Bolivar in Adelaide, I mean, that, I think that uh, like 70,000 households, that, uh, that services. So the question is, how do you then um, go and find out where that cluster is? But it's a very good starting point, maybe for cruise ships uh, and maybe for institutions uh, and maybe even for um, testing wastewater as it comes off, off planes and that sort of thing. Yep. There are a whole lot of measures you can put in place to try and track, track this virus. Great. And I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, for, for the future as well, so for students thinking about coming to university and um, uh, are interested in this kind of area, what, what do you think will be the kind of cutting edge uh, kind of innovations or horizons of investigation in three to five years' time. I mean, we assume that COVID-19, we will uh, be back to some kind of normality, but there might be uh, some new global pandemic uh, that, that comes up. What, what, are the, uh, uh, what are the kind of horizons within, within your area, Faye? Uh, well, within teaching, I think it's had a huge impact um, because teachers had to learn skills quickly. Uh, and adapt to the situation quite quickly. So um, one of the things that we're already doing in teacher uh, preparation is embedding the teaching of things like wellbeing strategies and awareness and skills, not just for the children's wellbeing, but also for the teacher. Um, I know I conducted a survey during um, COVID with over 177 countries responding for just teachers. Um, and a lot of them talked about um, their self-regulating and their self-management of their own well-being. Uh, and if, if we think back to pre-COVID times, mm. 
you know, we had well, over 50% of teachers leaving the profession within the first five years for a whole lot of reasons, but normally, you know, often associated with their well-being or their workload or things like that. So, you know, I think what's important now is that we, in our teacher preparation, is that we help teachers to be more resilient and to take more responsibility for, the, for their well-being. So, you know, some of the teachers that um, answered my survey said that, you know, I, I was working at home and it was easy for the day to go into the night and if I didn't take some control over ending my day at five o'clock or whatever time, it just became a big blur and that would have an impact on, on your health. Mm. So um, they, they, they learnt to put strategies in place which they wouldn't have done before if they were you know, going to school and uh, things like that. They'd get out for a walk. Um, you know, pets and dogs and cats and things became very important to them to, to go outside, be with nature yep. uh, and take this sort of time out that yep. I often don't think teachers do because, no. you know, they're pretty committed to their profession. So I think that's something that should uh, be embedded in teacher uh, education programs in the future, but also teaching our um, pre-service teachers technological skills so that they can be more adaptable and flexible to the situation. So one of the things we're already doing here is uh, our first years all learn to teach uh, using a mobile device um, so that their pedagogies are you know, much more uh, responsive to the children that they're teaching. And so if they were thrown into another pandemic or something like that, which I'm sure we're going to have, they're already skilled and equipped with some of yeah. what they need to be more successful. Uh, with engaging with kids, building relationships online, positive relationships, interacting with parents online. Um, so, so sort of some of the things that yeah. know, we've been doing. And certainly the, the well-being and the, the, the kind of uh, uh, mental health issues have come much more to the, the fore, more generally in society as well. I mean, there's been, uh, this year is much more of a focus on uh, Are You OK Day? Yes. And uh, previously that would have gone really almost without recognition. Yeah. But uh, that, that kind of social network of support is now, it's really clear. We're social animals and uh, yeah, we need to right. support that. Yeah. And I think, Mike, also for, for the, you know, what, what's the horizon, uh, event horizon for, uh, for virology uh, in, in this area? Yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, pandemic preparedness. Um, I think that that's an obvious one. I think we... We often thought we may be prepared, but because we'd never really come across this in this magnitude or scale, we, we probably weren't prepared. And I think we, if, if you look at the South Australian response, I think we have been relatively well prepared, but that's probably because we didn't have massive numbers of cases. If you look elsewhere around the world, they haven't been particularly well prepared. So there's going to be a lot of science around that. There's going to be a lot of science around um, public health and epidemiology. Uh, and also vaccine design and antivirals and all those sort of uh, things. So uh, there'll be a, a, an explosion of science, I think, coming out around this area into, into the future and, to, and technology to deal with it, hmm. I think. So that's where I can see things into the future. So in the future, we'll be more prepared and more resilient. Well, we'd, we'd, we'd like to hope so. Let, let's hope that, you know, three or four years down the track, we, we haven't forgotten this um, yeah. and that we've... I'm actually, sure we won't. No, I'm sure we, I'm sure we won't because we'll be living with it still. But... You know, sometimes when, when things are out of sight so much, when things have died down a little bit, then um, we tend to forget. I think we, there's got to be a push to really keep on top of this. Yeah. And that's the role of governments, I suppose, to really try and, uh, and keep it in our minds and, and do the right thing. And prepare us for Absolutely. the next pandemic. Yeah, and I think there will be one, just a matter of when. It's a bit of a scary thought, but um, as, as humans and as we encroach on animal niches, it's a real 
problem, I think, that um, it's not so much the animals that are a problem, it's us, it's the humans that are encroaching into areas where we perhaps shouldn't go sometimes. It's causing an issue. So. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Mike and Faye, thanks very much for the discussion and thanks for joining us uh, on the Discovery Pod. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss climate change.